I couldn't help but be moved in the first and second service. Uh, Keith is over on the base, and I told him in all the other two services, man, Keith, that sounds great. Give me that little thump thing you got going on over there a little bit. You, have you already unplugged? You would know by the third service I'm going to do this. Give me a thump thump. Well, you can plug back in. It goes just as easily in as it comes out. You sound like my kids. See, now I like that. Yeah, now see, that's good, isn't it? You know what's good about that is that God is such a mountain mover that Keith has had brain tumors and been going through treatment after treatment after treatment, surgery. And uh, there were days that he couldn't walk. And, and there he is over, over in our corner playing the bass like nobody's business and, and just rejoicing that God is a mountain mover. Sure, he's a mountain mover. He can move tumors too. <laughs> All right. Well, let's look to Matthew chapter 5 today. I want you to look at two passages. Matthew chapter 5. First, go to Matthew 19. Stick a piece of paper right there because we're coming back to it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And following, but first, I want to read chapter 5, verse 31. All right? Here's what the Lord says. And remember, what he's doing here is resetting in the Sermon on the Mount. He's resetting some some misstatements and just outright lies. He says that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we will not be part of the kingdom of God. Now, that's a big deal because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most prevalent people to be obedient to God's word. If there's anybody that's able to put on a show of righteousness, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't be part of his kingdom. Now, the reason why that's important is because Jesus is not ever working on the outside in like the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. He is always working on the inside out. He's not trying to make us better, modifying our behavior and thereby modifying our heart. No, he works in the opposite direction. Jesus gives us a brand new heart, a brand new nature, and from that inner working comes the outward expressions of righteousness. So he's telling us what righteousness is like by this newness of life that is given to us in Christ, this new heart that is ours. But now look what he says in this fifth chapter, the 31st verse. He's making a a redirective statement. He's saying it's also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in the day of Jesus, there was a significant debate going on regarding divorce, particularly in the circles of Judaism. And in this, the debate centers on an interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the first verse, which is about divorce. And it talks about a man issuing a divorce for some indecency. That's the phrase, some indecency. Now, like all religions, Judaism has its conservative camp and its liberal camp. 
And for the conservative camp, they would say the focus is on indecency. And the interpretation was that if your wife commits the indecency of adultery, God demands you give her a certificate of divorce. You divorce her. The liberal camp goes in the opposite direction. They focus not on the word indecency. They focus on the word some. And then they begin to categorize what the sum is amongst the indecencies that a woman might commit. In fact, they came up with a, a pretty exhaustive list about what some of the indecencies would be that would give man an opportunity to, to divorce his wife, to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in that culture, it was the man making the decisions. The woman had little rights, and so you, you understand the culture. It's talking about men divorcing their wives. All right, what Jesus is doing is he's coming forward and saying, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, in fact, he's giving six statements that are truth that he is resetting. What he is saying is, if you're from the conservative camp who believes that if your wife has committed adultery, God mandates that you give her a certificate of divorce, you're wrong. And if you're from the camp who says, here's some indecencies that a woman could commit that a man is going to be able to give a divorce for, including burning your food. Now, that sounds a little retarded, doesn't it? But it is what they said. In fact, the Talmud is the oral traditions of Judaism, those laws that are stated orally, those stories that are stated orally, but it's written down. And so part of that which was written down was, if your wife burns your food... That is indecent, and you can give her a certificate of divorce for that. So obviously, we're way off track. Those who claim that God would mandate divorce and those who claim that he's okay with just any kind of divorce, Jesus is resetting the inaccurate understanding about marriage and divorce. Now, what's really, really interesting is how he does it. In the 19th chapter, Matthew gives us a more expressive um, explanation by Jesus regarding divorce because he is asked specifically and he's going to be a little bit more elaborate on the answer. It's asked of Jesus, um, can a man give a wife a certificate of divorce for any reason? And rather than initiating an answer directly to their question, he takes them back to Genesis 1 and 2 so that he can help them to understand God's original intent regarding marriage. And once they understand God's original intent regarding marriage, divorce won't even be an issue. They understood what God's intent was. So the way Jesus is handling this question out of Matthew 19 is very important for us to understand as well because he answers it with great wisdom and with great care because he recognizes the questioner is actually trying to set a trap. And dependent on how Jesus is going to respond to the question, the trap is going to be set. For instance, if he responds with a more fundamental conservative approach, then he might potentially end up like John the Baptist. Let me digress a little bit and remind you of him. As you remember, John has a real conservative stance on marriage and uh, the king of the day, Herod, had chosen to marry his brother's wife. They divorce, he marries her, brings, him in, brings her into 
uh, the throne, and John was very vocal about that sin against God. Herod actually has John arrested, and then later Herodias, his wife, calls for his head on a silver platter. The conservative stance of John cost him his head. So those questioners are asking Jesus about this, hoping that he would bend in the direction of conservatism. And if doing so, it might just very well cost him his life too. Or if he happens to go the liberal side, which they probably doubted that he would. But if he happens to go the liberal side, then he's discounted the very law of God and discounted Moses who gave the law. So he doesn't fall for the trap. He instead speaks in the direction of God's original intent regarding marriage. And if they understood the original intent regarding marriage, then the question about divorce would be resolved as well. Now, you and I should be very wise about the intent of people who ask such questions. The questions might be flavored somewhat differently. They might have a different subject matter. It might go something like this. Suppose, Randy, two men are in love. And they are committed to a lifelong relationship together. Do you believe that God would want them to stay separated? Do you believe that they wouldn't be able to give a commitment of love and marriage together just because they're two men? Now the trap is set. If we speak in a liberal way, then we discount God's word, which is very clear about this subject. And if we speak on a fundamental way, a conservative way then we are accused of being unsympathetic and uncaring and unloving. Very much not 21st century-ish, sort of the antiquity of the Bible. So with wisdom, we would respond much like Jesus responds. Or the question might go something like this. Suppose, Randy, a married couple is miserable together. They've grown apart over the years. The kids have emptied out. The nest is now theirs. And they no longer want to be married for the rest of their lives and be unhappy. Are you telling me that God would want them to stick it out in the unhappiness of their marriage rather than just go ahead and separate and divorce? Now again, depending on which way I go, this trap is sprung. So with wisdom, Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. Instead, he looks to the initiation, the very beginning of the institution of marriage. And he begins to, to pose what God has said about that and let the answer of divorce come out of that. So with perfect wisdom, I'll read to you the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 4, 5, and 6. Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, as we look at the passage today of Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32, we're going to do the same thing that Jesus did as he referred to it in Matthew 19. We're going to look back at how God originally intended marriage to be because he has not changed the intentions of marriage. It's important to do so because neither we nor the people of the world can really understand marriage unless God teaches it to us. In fact, we have proven to be a people in a culture that will make marriage to be anything we want it to be, even though we haven't made marriage at all. 
I was intrigued. I was in conversation with a man from Brooklyn, New York. I was on my way from Entebbe, Uganda, down to Johannesburg, South Africa. We had a four and a half hour flight. I had the window seat. He had the aisle seat. There was a seat in between that was vacant. And I thought, this is a good thing. I'm going to be able to rest a little bit before making my way to Zimbabwe. Well, the Spirit of God didn't want me to rest that night. And I turned my attention to this guy the entire four and a half hours. He was trying to indoctrinate me on the reasons why I should vote a certain way in the upcoming election. And I was trying to tell him I didn't want to vote at all anyway. <laughs> but my indoctrination to him was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wanted him to understand the fullness of the gospel and what Christ was providing for him in a rich relationship of surrender, freedom that could be his. He immediately labeled me as a fundamental, as one who is narrowed in his focus, in his thinking. He believed that all roads lead to heaven and that everybody is serving and worshiping the same God, whether it's the Buddhist or the Islamic or whatever it is. And he believes that even he ought to be allowed access to heaven because he is a good person doing good things. And I said to him, without being really curt, I said to him, now listen, let me get this straight. You're going to decide who gets to go into heaven, a place that you didn't create and rules that you didn't put together. That doesn't make sense to me. What makes you the one to be able to do that? Wouldn't God be the one to do that? If he's the one that made it, wouldn't he be the one to determine who gets in and has access to it? Who he's going to live for all eternity with? Wouldn't that be up to him? Why do you get to decide that? Now, of course, we had been about four hours in this discussion, so we had made friends together, and you can be a little bit more candid when you're friends together, and you're open in your response and listening back and forth. So he was saying some very candid things to me and me to him. But it's the same way here with marriage. Just because you have an idea of marriage doesn't mean that you get to change God's institution. Just because you have a desire for marriage to be something different doesn't mean that you have the authority to change it. You didn't create it. You didn't put it in order. And you're not held accountable in the way that you think it ought to be. You're held accountable to the way God thinks it ought to be. And so Jesus is helping the people to discover this whole thing about divorce is off track to begin with. Let me take you back to the beginning, how God intended marriage to be. And then I think your answer will come about. Or the whole thing about falling into the trap about homosexual marriage or about multiple marriages uh, or multiple uh, wives or whatever the case is. Don't fall into that trap. Just take people back to the original. Take them back to God's intent. And this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. So, he is allowing God to define it. Now, that's a big deal. Because if you're going to argue a definition, then you are at risk of defining it wrongly. Because we only learn about institutions that are made by God from God. Now, even though my experience in marriage is mostly good, there have been seasons that it's not been too good. But it's very good now. But even my experience in marriage, as good as it's been for over 25 years, I am not one to define it based on my experience. And certainly you can't define it by what you watch on television, why sitcoms are trying to define marriage as they want it to be. And, and that's certainly not the way it is. So we have to go back to God. Because if you're going to allow Hollywood or academia or a sinful culture to redefine marriage 
or to allow a marriage to be defined as personal experiences, then you are going to be wrong in the direction that God intended for it to be. So Jesus takes them right back to it. So let's go back to that section that he's speaking of. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And Jesus makes these statements by the words that he's sharing. Marriage is between, only between a male and a female. Now, that's easy for you and me to understand, but obviously the culture is redefining marriage, or at least attempting to. But God has purposely defined marriage as being between a male and a female. Now, can you remember the first command that God gave to Adam and Eve? The first command was not about not eating of the tree. He gave that to Adam. The first command for Adam and Eve, the law of God was set, and here it is. Multiply and fill the earth. Now, the way God has already created things, He's created male and female with intentionality of multiplication and filling the earth. So at the very start, marriage is defined by God as a male and a female And only that combination works for the command of God to be obeyed, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth. And then secondly, we find that what Jesus is helping people to discover and would for today in the 21st century is that marriage is only between two people. He brings a male and a female together. Now, in the Supreme Court right now, there's a petition for a guy who has a television show, thankfully I've never watched it, but he has multiple wives evidently, and he wants to petition the Supreme Court to allow him and others to have multiple wives, if that's what they so choose, or multiple husbands, as the case might be. But the way God defines marriage is it is a male and a female, only one male and only one female coming together. And here's what he says, the two become one flesh. And we're going to talk about that. It's a mysterious way that God brings one plus one to equal one. And then he says that marriage is meant to be permanent. He says the male is to leave his father and his mother and cleave, which means hold fast. It's a permanent holding on to. I should remind us that there is no provision for divorce in the Garden of Eden. There was only one provision and it was hold fast. So now we're getting a definition that goes something like this. Marriage is only between a male and a female, and it's only one male and one female, and it's those two, a male and female, coming together by God and being unified into one flesh, meant to be held permanently together. And the last thing, the purpose of God joining a man and a woman together is that he is the one doing it. He's right in the middle of it. Adam didn't have a choice. Eve didn't have a choice. God was the one deciding. And he is bringing them together because he knows that's what's good for them. So now we have a more clear understanding of biblical marriage. Anything outside of this is unbiblical and takes you away from the the will and the way of God and is definitely not glorifying to him. So let me just focus on the last three by giving you some statements. And that is this. First, the central theme of marriage is unity. That's what he means by one flesh. Now, notice the reoccurrence of this idea from Matthew chapter 19. Of course, he's quoting Genesis, but notice this reoccurring unifying theme. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. That's a unifying statement. Hold fast. It's a permanence. And then he says down in verse 5, and the two shall become 
one flesh. That's pretty unified. And then he reiterates that again with some redundancy in in verse 6. One flesh, he says. Uh, What therefore God has joined together. Another statement of unity. Man must not separate. Another statement of unity. So five times he's reiterating the intent or the... uh, Uh, The theme of marriage, which is unity. So the one flesh is the theme of marriage. If I were a professor and I were going to give you a quiz, that would be question number one. What is the theme of marriage? Unity. One flesh. But I'm not a professor and you're not going to take a test, are you? So we see from the first marriage that God brought two people together to unify them together. Two individuals becoming one. That's a mysterious thing. Because in life, one plus one equals, yeah, that's not a trick question. Can we just hope that that goes on about 1 o'clock, 1.30 this afternoon? Because I could sleep to that. And I'm just going to ask you right now that you not go to sleep right now. (laughs) Yeah, catch this. One plus one plus one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit equals one. You see how the the math of God works? So one male, one female brought together by God equals one flesh. It's meant to be a unifying theme. Now this one flesh is a mysterious thing, isn't it? It's, uh, It's not the act of love. I used to think that and probably have taught that before, that one flesh is the act of love that a husband and wife can have together. The act of love is simply a symbol of the one flesh that God has already brought together. It's an expression of that, but it's not that. All right, I'm sorry for your parents. You're probably going to have to do some explaining this afternoon. (laughs) Anybody can have a lustful act, but not just anybody can have an act of love that expresses one flesh. Only those that are brought together by God. A male and a female in a covenant relationship brought together by God. And then it's expressed in the act of love together. So there's a great wonder to God's ordination of marriage, how it's unified. The two shall become one. Now, I minister as an officiate of various ceremonies, weddings and such, and I can pronounce a couple to be husband and wife, but only God can make them to be one flesh. Marriage is totally up to God. It's totally from God. It's totally through God. I wish the world could understand this. You just can't redefine what God has defined and redo what God is doing. You just can't do it. And I wish the church would understand that truth as well. Because marriages would take on a glorious perspective when the church understood what God is doing by bringing a man and a woman together so that they might be one flesh. The Spirit is doing that work. He is making husbands and wives to be one flesh. And listen to me, our flesh is resisting every movement of the Spirit to do that. In my marriage, as good as it is, I still have a way about my flesh that fights for me, for self-centeredness. I still hold the scepter in my house. That's the remote control. I don't give that up very easily. Kay said to me just the other day, why is it that the men always get to decide certain things? And of course, my response is, because you won't decide. Where do you want to eat? It doesn't matter. 
until you drive into the parking lot. Oh, I didn't want to go here. I thought you said it didn't matter. Yeah, the Spirit is making us one, two very different people. I mean, you can't get very much different than Kay and I from one another. In stature, I'm tall. Stature, she's short. I love the summer heat. I love to sweat. She likes the winter and loves to shiver. We're just different. I love to be outside. She loves to be inside. The Spirit is making us one. You know how I know that to be true? You know, I was gone for... 12 days or so recently over in Africa, and my wife cut our grass four times. She's only cut grass one other time, and she burnt the riding lawnmower up, and I just haven't let her do it again, and she really doesn't care to do it, but all of a sudden now, she's like fighting to cut the grass. Just yesterday, she said, why don't you, uh, day before yesterday, why don't you do the weed eating, and I'll cut the grass, and I'm thinking inside, I don't want you cutting the grass. I want to cut the grass. Yesterday, she was longing to be outside. You know what I'm thinking? Wow, the Spirit of God is making us one. And she's willing to do those kind of things for me. I'm still not willing to go shopping at the mall, but God is going to work on my heart regarding that. So the theme of marriage is unity. God making the two become one. And so, my friends, we should have nothing to do with disunifying marriage. I recognize that divorce is culturally accepted today, but divorce is not divinely accepted most of the time. All right, the theme is unity. Secondly, the intent of marriage is to demonstrate a greater lasting relationship, a lasting relationship beyond ours. It's the relationship of Christ and His church. The key to marital unity and love is not romance, but worship. If you would just grunt, you don't have to say amen all the way, but if you could just kind of grunt every now and then so that I know that I'm hitting a mark there, because that one needed a grunt. Can I say it again, give you another opportunity? The key to marital unity and love is not romance, but worship. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. Marriage is meant to express God's glory, which is worship. So if you want your marriage to be great, it's not about you becoming a romantic. Although that does help. It's about you becoming a worshiper. So that you rise up in the morning with that chronic halitosis sleeping next to you and you say to the glory of God, I choose for this marriage to be an expression of worship today. It's meant to move beyond us and point people to Jesus. You know, when speaking about marriage and family, Paul says this, it's a mystery that's profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and His church. They're trying to drill him down about marriage. And, and Paul says, you know, it's just a mystery, but here's what it is. Marriage is about Christ and his church. Marriage is God's earliest expression of Christ in the church. You know, the expression of Christ in the church did not occur first in Acts. It occurred in Genesis 1. 
Because where you have a husband and wife coming together, there you have the expression of Christ and His church. Your marriage is not meant to be permanent beyond this world. Your marriage is a shadow. And the glory is not marriage. The glory is our relationship with Jesus. That's the reason why when we say, do you take her, do you take him, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, as long as you both shall live? I do. Because what happens when you die? It's over. One day Jesus was asked about this and he says, listen, marriage is not in heaven like it is here. You'll be like the angels Now, some people have us with harps sitting on clouds. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the way angels relate to each other and to God, that's the way we'll be. You won't be given to marriage. Because marriage is a shadow. And when you come into the glorious essence of the light, the fullness of your relationship glorified in Christ Jesus, the shadow means nothing anymore. Every glimmer of this great relationship of God, this lasting eternal relationship with God, which is seen in your marriage, where your spouse is forgiving, where your spouse is gracious, where your spouse is loving unconditionally, where your spouse is some way attributing this relationship like that of Christ and his church. Every moment you have like that is to stir you to that. It is not the end. It's the means to point us to the end, which is Jesus. Your marriage is meant to point us to something greater. And it's not just to point us, but to point the world to something greater. As I disciple people that are moving towards marriage and I spend weeks with them, one of the things that I tell them is that you think and the world thinks that your job is to have a great relationship together, that your marriage would be good together, that you would enjoy it, be filled with joy and all those things. And I would say, yes, but don't fall short there. Go all the way. Your marriage is to communicate to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they look at your marriage, they ought to say, there's something different about that marriage than every other marriage that I've been involved with. There's something glorious. There's something divine. There's something unlimited in love and favor and mercy and grace. And they may not be able to put it into words, but they ought to walk away and say, God is in the middle of that. And it tells me something about his relationship that he desires to have with me. And if your relationship in marriage isn't there, then you've got to understand what it is that God's intent for your marriage is to be. It's to be a glorious display of the gospel. You know, Jesus has given this throughout the scriptures. He claims himself rightly so as the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride. And you see the parallels throughout the scripture. One that he's willing to pay the price for the dowry, that is, for the bride, by his own blood. He pays it all. He enters into a covenant relationship, just like a husband and wife would enter into a covenant relationship together. He's preparing a home for us that where we are, he would bring us to himself, that we might be where he is. All the parallels of Jesus and the church and marriage and the husband and wife are very intentional and very important. Since marriage is the model of the Christ covenant relationship with the church, it is meant to display God's glory. Live it out in that way. So our marriages are meant to allow the world to see and understand the gospel, the covenant relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. And this is the intent of marriage. Listen to me. The intent of marriage is to not make a couple happy. 
It's not to make the couple fulfilled. The intent is to picture the great covenant relationship with Jesus and his church. And I've never met a couple that expressed that relationship well that wasn't amazingly happy and amazingly fulfilled. Go all the way and let God be glorified in the worship as you identify marriage like that of Jesus and his church. I'm certain that this is the way it is because marriage is not in heaven. It's all moving to that place and then it's fulfilled as Jesus and the bride come together. And they have a great feast that he is prepared ahead of time to have. So once the church and Jesus are together in heaven, there's no need for a man and woman to be sharing in life together like they are in marriage. The glory of the ultimate marriage is now fulfilled with Christ Jesus and the shadow is cast no more. Now to abuse marriage and to break the covenant of marriage is to tarnish the very image of Jesus' loving relationship with his church. And so what he would say to us is, don't do that. With every couple that I marry, I ask them to make that sacred vow that I mentioned a moment ago. I take you for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Our covenant is to one another in making those points that express this eternal covenant with God. And here's what Jesus is saying. His proposal to us and his covenant with us would go something like this, Randy... Church, I take you for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, forever. Not as long as we both shall live, but forever. For I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So when a marriage comes together and it's permanence and the husband cleaves, holds fast to the wife of his youth and they live out the expression of grace and glory and love so that people begin to identify and understand more fully the gospel, when that happens, it is glorious. But when it's broken, it causes people to wonder and doubt and question the permanence of the relationship God has. So Jesus has proven his long-suffering with us, hasn't he? I was thinking this week as I was just contemplating some of these kind of thoughts. Man, Lord, I'm so grateful for your promise to never leave or forsake because I've given you reasons to do that. I'm just going to be transparent enough for a moment to tell you that there have been seasons in my life that I have chosen faithlessness. And I've chosen rebelliousness. There have been seasons in my life that I have chosen not to be loving and caring towards God or the people of God. There's been seasons in my life that I've chosen to be rebellious. And you know what God proved all along the way? To be faithful when I was faithless, to be loving when I was unloving, to be kind when I was unkind. He proved all along the way that He would never leave me or forsake me. Now, I can tell you that I've never committed adultery against my wife. I've never even had sex with anybody other than my wife. I'm committed to her. She's committed to me. But I have not been faithful as God would want me to be faithful to her. I've not been loving to her like God would want me to be loving to her. I've not always been compassionate to her like I should be compassionate. You know what she's done for me? She's forgiven and she's loved and she's shown compassion and grace and mercy. All those things that the Spirit of God pours in her life. And when she does that, it is in a greater expression of what God's relationship with me is like. I would encourage us to live out our marriages in such a way. That's why 
we can understand what Satan is doing and trying to destroy the marriage as God has intended it to be. We can understand why Satan so badly wants to redefine it to be involved with somebody other than what God says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We know that he tempts us hard, the devil does, to break our covenant promises with our spouse. It's because he wants to deface and destroy the image of God and the love that God has for his people. So if he can't do it directly to God, he'll do it with everything that's meant to point out the goodness of God. So he's after your marriage because he's after God. And then you come to the focus of marriage and the focus of marriage is God although the marriage requires the action of a man and woman it is God who initiates the coming of the two together it's God who makes the two to become one God has joined them remember that God was the very first one to give away the bride remember that he created her he purposed for her to be the soulmate of Adam, and he intentionally brought Eve to Adam. I've had three sons, never a daughter. Kay and I are longing for the day that we'll have a granddaughter because we haven't had a daughter before. I've never been one to think differently than I want sons because if I had a girl, and some 16-year-old snot-nosed kid comes knocking at my door for her, I'm going to have a problem with that. So God, understanding that, gave me all boys. But man, do I long for a granddaughter. I'm just going to tell you, I'm putting the pressure on. I told Hayden when he got married, it's been over a year now, I told him the night before his ceremony to be married, I'll give you nine months and a day, then your mom and I want a grandbaby. No pressure. <laughs> but for you dads, it gets me every time. When I watch that dad bring that daughter down, he's purposefully doing that. And when I watch that dad hand that daughter over to that groom, it moves me every time. And you know why? Because that's God. He stands in the stead of God who took a woman named Eve and brought her to Adam and said to Adam, this is your woman. From the very start, the whole thing was meant to be about God. That God was purposeful. That God knew what was best with two people. That God brought them together. The great I am chose in his power to take from the man so that the woman could be created. Present the woman to the man and said, this is your soulmate. Every part of it is about God. Now listen, this is the reason why he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If the great I am has chosen to bring two together and make the two mysteriously one flesh, who is a mere mortal to change that? So the trap was set. What would Jesus say about divorce? And what Jesus said is most importantly, 
what does God say about marriage? You get the right understanding about marriage, and you'll have the right understanding about divorce. And aren't we grateful that he thinks that way? As I was just contemplating and begging the Holy Spirit not to cause confusion or not to cause me to appear judgmental in any way, because I'm certainly not wanting to do that, I just wrote down three questions that I thought might be in your mind. There are many others, which is a good thing we have nine staff people that can help you. (laughs) Ask them. But here's three that I thought might be on your mind. Can I just give you them real quickly? Some of you would say, Randy, is this message for me? Because I'm too young to be married or I'm not married yet. Is this even pertinent to me? Well, for some of you, God has not placed a desire within you to be married. You don't have a desire to engage in an act of love with a spouse And although many people would say that that's bad, God actually says that's pretty good because you'll be able to devote your entire being to his kingdom. For those of us who would burn in our flesh, he says, you ought to get married. That's one of the great reasons why I got married. But this message is still for you. And I would just have some things to say that if God desires you to be married, then you have to understand the intent for your future marriage, God's intent. Don't choose your future mate without having God in the middle of it. This isn't about you finding a mate. This is about God with you finding the mate and bringing you together. Choose your future spouse based on their ability and their understanding to surrender to God's theme and God's intent and God's focus for marriage. Exactly what I just went through today. That's the first litmus test. Do you understand this about marriage? Not, wow, she's hot, or wow, is he amazingly a stud, whatever. That's that's not the first. The first is you gauge them. Do they understand what God understands about marriage who made it? Third, choose your mate who leads you into the deeper truths of God. Now, you might be saying, well, you know what? He didn't lead me in the deeper truths of God right now, but there's coming a day that he's going to mature and he's going to do that. Listen, I've said this I don't know how many times to every couple that I've discipled towards marriage, and it's this. He will not get better than he is right now. You are getting the very best from him. He's still trying to woo you and convince you to walk the aisle and say, I do. You have to know his best game is on right now. It doesn't get better than it is right now. Because once you say, I do, and the commitment's made, he's going to pull back. My friends, if he is not leading you into the truth and the call of God in your life, you need to run. Because you're about to walk away from God and walk into the arms of a person. Does your girlfriend or your boyfriend lead you into a deeper relationship with Jesus? Is your life lived out more gloriously unto God because of the relationship that you have with your boyfriend or girlfriend? And is your life together a greater expression of worship to God? And if not, break it off and run to the open arms of God who is waiting to love you and to embrace you and encourage you. And if it is, 
And you just might be on to something that could be glorious and great. And a great way of communicating the gospel in your relationship. Second question is this. Are you saying, Randy, that divorce is always forbidden? Well, divorce is rarely the best option. Even when a spouse is adulterous, a forgiving and merciful spouse can demonstrate beautifully the gospel of Jesus Christ that has already been extended to him or her. However, because of sin and the hardness of our heart, God says that divorce is acceptable where adultery has already been committed. The covenant has already been broken physically. Third, what about me, Randy? I'm divorced and remarried. Am I living in sin and is my spouse living in sin? Does God see us committing adultery every time we're together? Well, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, who was in dialogue with this woman who had been married five times, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, and the one she was with right now, she was shacked up with. I'm reminded of Jesus who gave to her new life and says to her in the newness of life, now go and sin no more. All right, you can't right a wrong by doing a wrong. So you've divorced and now you're married again. You can't break that relationship up. The two have come together mysteriously by God. Even what was stepped forward in sin by you, God worked his mysterious ways, making one plus one equal one. And he wants the relationship that you're in right now, even though it might have started in the wrong direction, he wants you to know that your relationship right now can be a relationship that demonstrates glory and grace and love and forgiveness and in all ways can communicate the gospel as it's intended to be. Is it the right way to start one? No. But when you're in one, God can redeem it. God is the rebuilder of everything that is broken. So if you're in that kind of relationship, you confess the sin to God. You repent that you'll never do it again, and you walk in the glory of God's grace. And let other people see that. There's probably many more questions that you'll have. I encourage you, as I did two women who were walking out, who were asking because they were confused. I said, go back to God's word. Be quiet before the Holy Spirit and let him teach you. He's your teacher. The confusion that you have is not authored by God. It might have been muddled by my words or it might be an attack from the enemy. But go back and be quiet before the Lord and he'll teach you. So for those of us who are married and we find ourselves in this place, what do we do? Well, we press into the unity of oneness. What the Spirit of God is doing, two people becoming one by the work and the power of God. For us men, it means we surrender our lives to our wives. We surrender like Christ has for the church. To the wives, it means submitting to the leadership that the man has placed in your life as you do unto Christ. It's a mutual submission of love and respect, as he says in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Secondly, we ought to express the love and the grace and the lasting covenant of Jesus with his church in our relationship, in our marriage relationships. 
And all the while, culture has been telling you that you're married because you want to be happy, and you're married because you want to have sex, and you're married because you want to have kids. And that all is all good. But God says you're married because you have an opportunity in your marriage to express my glorious relationship with people in the church. Let it be elevated to that. And then use your marriage to express God's glory uniquely. Nobody else is going to be able to express it like you and your spouse who've been brought mysteriously together by God and made to be one. Make sure God is there in the very center of it. Let your marriage be that of worship to God, demonstrating the glory that it's meant to demonstrate. And in that, my friends, your marriage and your family will be exemplary as God intended it to be in Genesis 1. Let's pray. So, Lord, I pray as the rain is refreshing the ground even now that your spirit is bringing refreshment into this place. I'm recognizing, Lord, that some marriages are in crisis. I pray for the couples right now that are experiencing that crisis so far from how you've defined marriage to be. But today, Lord, I pray that your word would be like the gentle rain in their life and it would provide for them the refreshment that they need. For the one who has redefined marriage or allowed culture to redefine marriage, Lord, let it be that we come back in full understanding to the institution as you brought it about so that it might be glorious unto you. For the one who longs for marriage and just hasn't come to that place of understanding who that spouse will be, Lord, would you give them direction? First and foremost, would they love Jesus with all their being more than they would love any other individual? For you said we ought to be able to forsake all things and follow you. And then, Lord, as they grow in their love relationship with you, if you would give them the privilege of having a mate so that together they might grow in relationship, Lord, what a great kind thing that would be. I pray for them that they would trust you, rest in your perfect timing, and in your wondrous grace. Thank you for those that you have called to be single. They are so singularly devoted and focused on your kingdom, Lord. What a great day it will be in heaven when you reward them for all that faithfulness. They've given up so much in order for you and your kingdom to be more widely known. So thank you for them. I pray for that grace that they would prevail and persevere. We have much to be in prayer for. We're thankful that the Spirit of God is our intercessor who prays uniquely in every, for in every individual for your perfect will. And we thank you for Jesus who is our advocate, always speaking to the one who is the accuser of the brethren. Thank you for him. We pray that we would glorify him all the more in our marriages and in our relationships. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.